Non-stop talk radio, streaming 24 hours a day. TalkZone.com TalkZone.com Now, The Dr. Robbins Show, talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Hi, and welcome to The Dr. Robbins Show. We bring you the latest medical info and stories. I'm a doctor, and this is a real medical show. We don't sell anything on our program. My co-host is social worker Susie Robbins. You can email us at doclarryrobbins at aol.com. We have an exciting shoe today that includes distracted drivers. Is multitasking such a good thing? Prescription drug abuse. We'll also get into a new OTC over-the-counter diet drug. Uh, we'll talk about young women who cut and hurt themselves, which is more common than we used to think. Uh, we'll get back into the whole Vioxx uh, enigma off the market Vioxes, but should it be? We'll talk about personality disorders. We'll get into your emails and a whole lot more. How about we start with distracted multitasking drivers? A recent survey showed that four out of five drivers in the U.S. multitask. We fiddle with the radio, we talk on the phone, we eat stuff, and incredibly, people text message and email. That's unbelievable. Some people also watch movies, they put on makeup, paint their toes, put in contacts, yada, 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 yada. It's pretty scary stuff. They've actually done sophisticated tests on people, such as certain types of MRI scans, looking at how our brain works when we're on the phone. The bottom line is our brain is totally distracted and only minimally paying attention to the road. And it does not matter whether someone's using a hands-free phone or holding it. You know, in Chicago, they've banned handheld phones while driving, but studies do show that it doesn't really matter. Hands-free or handheld, accident rates are about the same. I actually seem to remember an Australian study where the hands-free phones actually had a higher rate of accident because people are fiddling with the dial pad, etc., etc. So I think we need to address this whole distracted driving problem, particularly in teenagers, because we see lots and lots of accidents because of it. Now, Susie, what do you think about people on the cell phone while driving, people eating, putting on makeup? What's your take on all this? Okay, well, first of all, I think we probably, for the most part, all of us are guilty of one or a few of these activities. Um, one thing I'd like to clarify, though, first is is the difference between a handheld telephone in the car versus a hand-free phone my understanding is is why there isn't really much of a difference is not so much the physical mechanics, but uh, is just where the phone, the conversation takes you to. You could have a, what are they calling these new ones now, the Bluetooth, all hooked up perfectly in your ear, uh, but if you're involved in a very heavy-duty conversation, you could be miles away from whatever road you're driving on. And I think that's one of the key concerns with whatever kind of phone it is that you're using. You know, that's um, a very interesting point. They've actually done what we call functional MRI. They put people in this huge magnet, the MRI machine, 
which is a newer form of CAT scan, and it's called functional MRI, where they can actually see where your brain is attention, where your thinking is. And interestingly enough, when people are on the phone, they've done this, on the hands-free phone or the handheld phone, and their thinking is not looking straight ahead. It's way off yonder. Okay, so what I'm thinking is, is in some strange way, is it possible that people that are using these Bluetooths, where the apparatus almost becomes part of them, become so focused on the conversation, they they truly forget that they're even uh, talking on a telephone, where at least with the handheld, you're aware of it because you're holding it, and it's not as comfortable physically to drive when you're holding a phone. Yeah, I think that's very true, and... In the studies, they indicated that the hands-free people had a few more accidents, actually, with hands-free because they were fiddling with dialing. And that can be, we can create technology, I imagine, to get around that where people can press one button or when they can now if they program it into their phone. But still, we can't get around the fact that people's attention is way off the road. You know, personally, don't you just hate it when you're almost hit by a car and you look and the person is on the cell phone? The other day, I was looking, I was behind a BMW, and they had not one, but two DVDs, one in the back and one in the front. The driver seemed to be looking at the DVD. Uh, the, The passengers were. I was. It just distracts everybody. Unbelievable. Now, I wanted to get into a recent study you may have seen about prescription drug overdoses. Behind auto crashes, drug ODs are now the second leading cause of death in the U.S. The main drugs were sedatives, such as the Valium-type meds, and opioids, particularly OxyContin and Vicodin, come to mind in that class. Now, I think most of the time we see a combo of drugs in the system of someone who has died, Typically, it's something like Vicodin plus Xanax plus alcohol or variations on that morbid theme. The CDC out of Atlanta lists these as accidental overdoses, but it's really a lot more complicated than that. In some folks with depression, it may not be a suicide, but almost. We call it near-suicidal behavior. By that, I mean some accidental deaths happen when someone usually who's very depressed, takes the combo of drugs and figures, well, I don't really want to die, and I'm not trying to die. I just want to escape my pain, whether it's real or psychic pain. But if I die, well, okay. And uh, they don't particularly keep track of how much they're taking. This happens with driving deaths also, where a person who is really down and depressed or other psychological problems Drink some alcohol, for instance, hops in the car, guns it to 110 miles an hour, and they're not really trying to commit suicide, but if it happens, it happens. So the bottom line is these drugs really do enhance quality of life, the opioids, the sedatives, but they can lead to death, which is an awful bad side effect, when they're misused. Susie, what's your uh, take on drugs and overdoses? Well, I, I totally agree with you that for many individuals where it may seem to be an apparent accidental death, that maybe there is some near suicidal behavior there. Um, you know, you also wonder about people in general who have been taking various medicines, uh, possibly for depression, is 
What about a doctor's culpability in that? You know, from the doctor's end and from the pharmacist's end, uh, they do have a responsibility to uh, fully assess the patient, make sure people aren't just drug-seeking and looking to get high. And there are a few doctors around who are just uh, pill doctors who will give the drugs, but 99% of the doctors uh, are actually trying to legitimately treat the patient, are trying to minimize medicine. What happens is patients hop around, they go to five doctors for various drugs, they get the drugs off the Internet, uh, they drink, then all of a sudden they die, and then very often there is a lawsuit. They pick one of the doctors to sue. But doctors are culpable if uh, they're running a pill mill, but uh, the vast majority of doctors really aren't doing that. Well, moving on, in the news last week, there's a diet drug that just won FDA approval to be sold actually over-the-counter. The drug is Ali, A-L-L-I, which is half as strong as the prescription version Xenical. That was X-E-N-I-C-A-L is the uh, prescription version. Obesity, of course, is an enormous problem in the U.S. A majority now of U.S. adults, can you believe a majority, are considered overweight, and weight leads to diabetes, high blood pressure, and heart problems. Now, the U.S. does lead the world in overweight people, but it's not just the U.S. Most developed countries, uh, Europe, etc., uh, do have an enormous problem with weight. The underdeveloped countries have it the other way, where they don't have enough food. So, a new pill that helps with dieting may not be such a bad thing. It blocks fat absorption in our GI tract, our stomach, and uh, colon. However, however, stomach-related side effects are fairly common with this drug, including gas and other side effects. The new pill, Ali, should really be used with exercise and weight loss as part of a whole program. Otherwise, uh, nothing really works. You know, there's an interesting study of 5,000 people going on who lost weight and they kept it off for at least five years. The uh, keys in the study to long-term weight loss were exercising a lot, eating low-fat, weighing yourself often, grazing through the day, eating small meals throughout the day, portion control, and counting calories. Exercise was a key. Actually, in these 5,000 people who kept weight off for at least five years, they averaged 50, five, zero minutes of exercise or more, usually walking. Most exercises, uh, people who exercise consistently have a bunch of equipment. They have stuff at home. They belong to a club, they walk, they have an iPod, etc., etc. Exercise really has to become a big thing in people's lives. Now, most people go in and out of exercise, and the question is, how can you get back into it when you've been out of it for a while? I do love a website that I found called Spark People. That's S-P-A-R-K-P-People.com, Spark People. Uh, it's a free site that's terrific. It's motivating. It's all about diet and nutrition and exercise. You get daily emails. It's great. If I just read half of the emails that Spark people sent me, it'd be terrific. Now, turning to an interesting and disturbing study on self-harming behavior in young women, 
This Italian study last week they came out with looked at behaviors such as skin picking, cutting, burning the skin, severe nail biting, those types of behaviors. Now, the less serious problems such as hair pulling and nail biting were seen in 15% of young women. The more serious behaviors, particularly cutting and self-burning, were seen in about 4% of young women. These women who hurt themselves did experience more emotional distress than others, and they had a higher rate of eating disorders. So the bottom line is self-injuring behavior is relatively common among young women. Often there are underlying psychiatric problems, particularly anxiety, depression. We might see severe self-esteem issues, yada, yada, yada. Susie, what do you think about this study talking about young women hurting themselves? Well, I think we've all heard about it. Many of us maybe even know somebody who's done it. Um, you know, I think it's particularly concerning with young women who maybe are doing this in reaction to um, some kind of trauma that's occurred in their lifetime. But it's also concerning that there are many people that haven't had any sort of traumas and that they're also hurting themselves. makes me wonder, yeah, nature certainly could be causing some of this, or excuse me, nurturing what's been going on in the young person's life. But how about some people that for whatever reason something's going on with their brain chemistry that's causing this as well? Well, absolutely. It brings up the whole nature versus nurture controversy. How much is genetic in behaviors and how much is environment and parenting, et cetera, et cetera? I think if we look at the underlying psychological problems in young women who hurt themselves, most of those are genetic, uh, their personality characteristics, and some do... Uh, uh, some is influenced, of course, by how they were brought up, whether there was abuse or not. But there are some young women, a fair amount, who, who hurt themselves and do self-harming behaviors who've had wonderful parents and wonderful upbringings. Susie? Well, just as um, these young women certainly need therapy, it also brings to mind uh, my experience years ago when I was working in a high school and there were issues with many young women there, um, I'm thinking more concerning eating disorders, and that only the most experienced uh, social workers worked with them because in both of these areas it can be life-or-death type situations uh, with the eating disorders and with women, young women who are purposely trying to harm themselves. You know, in my experience, uh Young women who cut or hurt themselves, and this can be applied to young men too, I think, fall into two categories. The ones who have a serious underlying psychiatric disturbance that carries into adulthood and leads to big problems throughout their whole life. And other adolescents who may have a mild psychiatric problem such as depression or bipolar, but they end up being relatively normal in outgrowing it. But it does bring up the the concept of should we pushing be pushing these kids towards therapy? Susie, what do you think about therapy for these kids? Well, I think as we've we've uh, you and I have talked about in the past, therapy is usually good for anybody. But I think for for young people with these conditions, certainly it would be important. But just as importantly, they 
would need to have somebody skilled in working with them. Because I think if not, uh, maybe even some harm could come out of it. So you really have to have a, a practitioner who has had experience in this area. And in some of these kids, I think there is a role for medicine. If they're very depressed, highly anxious, there are uh, there's a limited role for medicine. We're not eager to get adolescents on much medicine, but if they have severe psychiatric disturbances, sometimes we can't avoid it. Some of the medicines that we use are antidepressants, and in the past... Uh, actually, in the past year, they've talked a lot about antidepressants causing suicidal thinking, and we've talked about this on other shows, and we'll get into it on future shows, but that's actually been looked at quite a bit now, and the bottom line is even in adolescence, the, the antidepressants help quite a bit more than the possible risks. Uh, all that I've seen out of the whole controversy with suicidal thinking from antidepressants is a whole lot of kids are just not getting treatment. With young people cutting themselves, it makes me wonder, as I'm sure it has with other people as well, is is this a real, a very visual SOS, just a cry for help, um, you know, with for parents who actually see their children physically maiming themselves and or, or cutting themselves, um, it can't get much more visual than that. You know, that's a great point. I think that um, young people tend to cut and hurt themselves for different reasons. Some, if they're particularly, if they're bipolar maybe or certain personality disorders, they do it because they feel sort of dead inside and they want to feel something. Others, it's part of an anger situation, either self-anger toward themselves or anger towards the whole world. So there's not one reason why people hurt themselves, but this whole concept of kids hurting themselves in various ways wasn't talked about really until the last 10 or 15 years very much. Well, that's the end of our first segment today. We have lots of cool stuff coming up. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins. I'm a neurologist, and you can email at doclarryrobbins at aol.com. That's D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y. R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL. I'm joined by my wife and social worker, Susie Robbins. The Dr. Robbins Show is all about interesting topics in medicine. The whole Vioxx saga, again, should it be on the market, personality disorders, and a whole lot more. So stay with us, folks. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Now, our next story involves Vioxx, which we've dealt with on the showgram before. Vioxx is an anti-inflammatory, like ibuprofen or naproxen, like Advil. Uh, it's from the company Merck. And it was implicated in making it slightly more likely to have a heart attack over the long term. A flurry of lawsuits uh, followed a few years ago, and Vioxx was unfortunately pulled off of the market. And I guesstimate that maybe a half a million people are plenty unhappy because Vioxx was the only thing that helped their pain. Now, it turns out that all anti-inflammatories, such as ibuprofen, which is Advil, or naproxen, uh, the trade name of naproxen is Aleve, 
can increase the risk of heart problems ever so slightly anyways. Well, a number of the anti-inflammatories, it turns out, are actually worse than Vioxx for this. So here we are. There are 27,000 lawsuits by people claiming injuries from Vioxx. And how many are valid? We don't know. Probably a fraction of that. Anyway, this week, one plaintiff dropped her suit right before trial. Uh, 3,000 similar claims have been dismissed. Usually, the ones that are dismissed are people who may or may not have taken a little Vioxx, and they figured they would jump on the lawsuit bandwagon. The real problem is that all drugs have upsides and they have downsides. It just seems, as a country, the lawsuits help a very few people, particularly the patients and their lawyer, if they win, but it hurts millions and millions of folks. Just look at this one tiny little example of Iox. At least 20 patients in my little practice alone, in my corner of the world, say life is terrible, hopeless, not worth living without Vioxx. So why can't they get the Vioxx? Well, it's because all the lawsuits, fair or unfair. There's a lot of other similar situations, particularly cropping up in the psychiatric depression field with the newer drugs such as Seroquel. That's used for bipolar, etc. So the Vioxx saga continues on and on. We've talked about this in the past, and we'll certainly talk about it in the future. Now moving on to an interesting study this week uh, that looked at ibuprofen versus acetaminophen. Advil is ibuprofen, and Tylenol is acetaminophen. In this study, for painful menstrual cramps, ibuprofen was better than acetaminophen. I think that for most aches and pains, ibuprofen and other similar anti-inflammatories, such as naproxen, which the trade name over-the-counter for naproxen is Aleve, is a bit better than acetaminophen, which is Tylenol. But there are minuses to ibuprofen or naproxen, which are the usual minuses, mainly uh, stomach, these anti-inflammatories can cause ulcers, which acetaminophen or Tylenol does not. However, all of these medicines, including acetaminophen, can hurt the kidneys and liver when you take them daily over a long period. The OTC, or over-the-counter drugs, should be minimized. Over the long term, they can have side effects, like any drug, even though they're over-the-counter. And you shouldn't drink much alcohol if you're taking over-the-counter drugs like these. You know, we have a love-hate relationship with prescription drugs in this country. We can't live with them, and we sure can't live without them, at least for our quality of life. I love it when people announce proudly, usually it's young people with no medical problems, I don't believe in taking any medicines. I don't believe in prescription drugs. Yeah, until they get some problem. 99% of people on meds don't take them for pleasure or to get high. They just help our quality of life. But we do need to get a balance and to minimize medications. So if you need more than one or two or even one or two of these every day, I would certainly talk to your doctor. Now, I wanted to talk a bit about personality disorders. The people 
with what we call severe personality disorders ruin a lot of lives and it helps to recognize them. Personality disorder public figures include Anna Nicole Smith, who is what we call a borderline personality disorder, Saddam Hussein, or Adolf Hitler, who were probably narcissistic personality disorders, and they were also probably paranoid personality disorders. And when they look at spree killers, for instance, almost every spree killer that they evaluate psychologically is what we call a paranoid personality disorder. Uh, Joseph Stalin was a classic paranoid personality disorder. Well, might help. Now, those are fairly extreme examples. There are mild and moderate personality disorders. There's different types of personality disorders, but in general, some characteristics of personality disorders go across many of the types, and they include anger, a sense of entitlement, ultra-thin skin, uh, being suspicious and paranoid, they bear severe, severe grudges against people, often for perceived slights where nothing really happened. Uh, they're often exploitative. They often lie. They're irritable. Uh, a lot of the personality disorders are very envious, extremely arrogant, and vain. Some of them love to create chaos and kick up the drama. In adolescence, the difference between a normal 16-year-old adolescent girl and a 16-year-old with a personality disorder is the normal girl might say something like, well, I feel too fat and my boyfriend doesn't like, like me, I don't like school, I don't like my mom, yada, yada, yada. The personality disorder adolescent girl kicks up the drama and does cutting, suicide attempts, drugs, goes on severe, severe anger binges against girls she sees as rivals. She may be in the emergency room with a lot of made-up medical problems, that sort of thing. Most personality disorders have very little insight. So the idea is not to marry a personality disorder, not to get too enmeshed if you can help it. If your boss has a severe personality disorder, it can completely ruin your quality of life. The typical neighbor who's a severe personality disorder may level anger over teeny tiny things or a tiny little strip of grass or where the garbage can is. Or your personality disorder might create, uh, if, if it's a neighbor, create a legal dispute out of absolutely nothing. These folks love to sue people and threaten. Unfortunately, in many situations, people can't get away from the personality disorder person. The schools can't fire or dismiss a kid just because his dad or mom is a complete, complete nightmare. In past shows, I've done uh, more about uh, and gone more into depth into personality disorders and will also in the future, I think it's a very important and overlooked subject. So Susie, what's your take on personality disorders? Well, I like the description how you've been uh, describing people who have them that maybe we as a whole know, say Saddam Hussein, for example. I think it's also important for us, as you're describing, it could be your neighbor, that yes, people around us could have it, but it's not always so obvious, say, like the neighbor who's really belligerent because you put your garbage can two inches on his side of the curb. Um, And that 
brings to mind for me that many, many people, maybe all of us, in fact, have some traits, while we are not personality disorders, we all have traits that bind us together as humans, and uh, but certainly wouldn't classify us as being mentally ill. Say, for example, lack of insight or a sense of entitlement. I mean, I think nowadays we'll talk about young people graduating from college, and boy, it sure seems different than it used to be that these kids all want to uh, work uh, with excellent benefits and a high-paying salary right away. And that sort of sense of entitlement, I think, comes more from the generation that's here now and how things have evolved uh, that's very well said. Certainly if people have a couple of characteristics of personality disorders, say they have some anger or sense of entitlement, we wouldn't say they're a personality disorder. Really, to define somebody as a personality disorder, it has to be a pervasive big part of their functioning, particularly when they're under stress, these characteristics come out. And, you know, a lot of personality disorders flip between victim uh, they'll play the victim and the victim card, and then the prosecutor. And when they become prosecutor, look out. If they have you in their sights, it's a terrible thing. If you hear about a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor who's shot or stalked or killed by uh, one of their clients, uh, that typically is a personality disorder who blames them irrationally for something. Susie? Another um, issue with personality disorders, which I know you can speak of, uh, is how how can people get better? Can they take a pill that will make them better? Certainly we know as someone who has bipolar or straight depression that, yes, medicine and or medicine and therapy can certainly help. With personality disorders, therapy can probably help, but there's no there's no pill or pills that can really help them. Maybe for the depressive parts there can be, but that's what another reason that it makes it a very very tough disorder to have and to treat. Yes, medicine is is limited. Uh, therapy is limited. We try to get personality disorders into therapy, long term therapy. Although a lot of therapists aren't particularly used to or good with working with them, but the depression part and the anxiety part, medicine can help. Uh, so there is a role for medicine in a number of these folks. The other thing is personality disorders can get better over time. If you look at 17-year-olds with what we call borderline personality, and by the way, borderline personality doesn't mean that it's almost normal or uh, it's mild. It, it can be a very severe personality type. But if you look at 17-year-olds and follow them by the time they're 30, at least a third are no longer functioning as a personality disorder, so the brain can actually heal itself over time. Just as with people who, during the course of their lives, may have uh, a severe borderline personality disorder, typically once they um, age to this point of 70s and 80s, you don't see much of it as much, certainly not as much as you did when you when they were much younger that over a course of a lifetime it typically does um, fade quite a bit of it fade away and a lot can depend on stress uh, people going through a divorce for instance often personality disorder characteristics come out now one of our favorite segments emails from you our listeners you can email us at doclarryrobbins at aol.com the first question is from Skokie, Illinois. 
Can you comment on treatments other than drugs for ADD? Well, ADD is attention deficit disorder where people can't concentrate, can't begin things, can't finish things. They certainly cannot do boring things, and that's almost a hallmark of ADD is they cannot work on boring projects. Kids with ADD don't hand in their homework. They're easily distractible. And to have ADD, you have to have had it as a kid or at least by age 10 or 11 or 12. Uh, adults don't all of a sudden start having ADD. They can have concentration problems and attention problems from anxiety or from depression or from a medical illness or from medicine or insomnia, but it doesn't all of a sudden start at age 25. So it has to be there as a child or early adolescent. And almost 4.7% of adults have ADD. It doesn't always have to be treated. Uh, there is mild, moderate, or severe ADD. Now, as far as drugs versus non-drug therapy or psychotherapy for ADD, there was one interesting large NIH study that was millions of dollars where they put therapists in the classroom with kids and spent quite a bit per kid in the study. It was, I believe, over $25,000 per kid. And the therapy and having a therapist one-on-one with a kid did help somewhat, but as soon as the therapist was withdrawn from the situation, the child's functioning went back to how it was beforehand. So that was discouraging as far as therapy. It was a very well-done study. However, I do think that counseling and parent coaching can help parents of those with ADD. Parent coaching can involve therapists, but it can also involve the pediatrician and others. And certainly in adults, counseling or therapy can help the person focus uh, it can help the person work on impulsivity and irritability that often goes along with ADD. So there always is a room for counseling. Now, we've been talking about attention deficit disorder, but not the H part, the hyperactivity. ADHD is the same as ADD with a distractibility and problems concentrating, but it also involves a lot of physical hyperactivity where people are constantly picking, moving their legs, getting up and down. They can't sit still. And that's seen more in children. Uh, it is seen in girls almost as much as boys. Previously, they thought that only boys had the H part, the hyperactivity part. But it turns out that girls have that too. And most of the people with ADHD with the H part lose it by age 18 or 20. So they end up with the attention deficit part, which continues usually for a lifetime, but not always. Uh, but they lose the hyperactivity part. That wraps up our third segment for today. I'm, an, I'm Dr. Larry Robbins, here with Susie Robbins, my co-host. This is a program focusing on health and medicine. You can email me at doclarryrobbins at aol.com. That's D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL. Coming up, we'll finish our email segment with a couple more emails. We'll talk about dads who may be unwittingly pushing their kids towards anorexia or bulimia. And we'll talk about the possible dangers of Heelys, which are those newfangled shoes that kids wear with a little wheel in them. So please stay with us. 
You've discovered TalkZone.com. TalkZone.com. The best in Internet talk radio. Now more of the Dr. Robbins Show with your host, Larry Robbins, MD, on TalkZone.com. Now another email from Lawrence, Kansas asked, are the drugs for my heartburn really safe? In a word, sort of. For heartburn or reflux, the most effective meds are called the PPIs. Prilosec, which is now over-the-counter, is a PPI, as is Nexium, which is known as the purple pill. And other th- uh, others in this class include Asifex, Protonix, and Prevacid. Now, these PPIs are relatively safe, but they do have long-term uh, risks, uh, particularly one is that getting rid of all the stomach acid long-term may not be all that safe, as it might lead to slightly more uh, risk for stomach cancer. Now, stomach cancer is relatively rare, but getting rid of all the acid long-term with these drugs does slightly increase that risk, probably. And the second long-term side effect from heartburn meds was recently discovered and reported on, which is a slight increase in the risk for hip fractures from osteoporosis or lack of calcium in the bones. So what to do if you have heartburn? Outside of drugs, eating smaller meals and not eating at night can help, along with putting the head of the bed up. A couple of companies actually make wedges for the head of the bed. As far as the drugs, if you are on a PPI, which is Prilosec, Nexium, etc., etc., I would consider going off here and there, talk to your doctor about it, maybe substitute some other class like Zantac type of medicines off and on. If you are on these drugs continuously, make sure you uh, take enough calcium and vitamin D Calcium doesn't work without vitamin D, and vitamin D is crucial for everybody. Susie, any thoughts? Well, I have taken um, Nexium, Protonix, Prevacet, you name it. I took all of them for a period of time because of reflux that I had. And fortunately and unfortunately, after a period of time, they just weren't working for me anymore. I tried the pillow wedge. I tried not eating after dinner. I just had that um, continual heartburn, which I had had a few endoscopies, so I knew that it really was GERD that I was suffering from. So for me, eventually, I got to the point where I looked into surgery for it, and I did have a um, non-invasive procedure called a fundoplication a few years ago where the surgeon... um, uh, put little holes in my stomach and actually uh, tightened up the esophagus. And I have to say that uh, for me it really worked, and I I have been off the medicine now for a few years, which makes me happy, uh, especially now when we hear that some of these medicines are sapping calcium because we all know as we get older we need all the calcium we can get. Now, speaking of the, the surgery for reflux, it's come a long way. Uh, they do it laparoscopically now. Uh, but it is still uh, a big surgery, and there's a lot of pain and agony after. It doesn't work for everybody. So the issue is who should get surgery for reflux? And usually we talk about people who aren't doing well on medicine long term. 
There are people out there on three or four Nexium or Prilosec a day, and it's still not cutting it. So they have to think about seeing a surgeon for reflux surgery. But because reflux surgery has come a long way and they can do it laparoscopically and easily, uh, more easily now, it's not an absolute last resort. How about one more email comment from Boca Raton, Florida? It's directed towards Susie, my co-host and social worker. Does anyone ever really get clean off of heroin? Susie? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, and maybe it was, it was directed at me because I did work for years at a methadone clinic as a social worker. So I certainly um, did see my share of heroin addicts. And that's a tough question to answer. Does anybody ever get clean? Well, I think many people do get clean. I think the uh, most important part of that is is how long can they stay clean. And for me, the experience was is that most people, many people coming in really did want to get that monkey off their back and to live cleanly. Uh, and they would really try and they would get on the methadone. But unfortunately, they would go back into their old patterns of behavior and to their neighborhoods and and be with the people who were still involved with it. And typically it was very hard to stay clean within uh, those uh, situations. I agree. My take with heroin addicts is that it really depends on two major factors. One is underlying psychological status. Do they have severe depression or bipolar? Do they have a personality disorder? Yada, yada, yada. That all complicates things. And number two, as Susie mentioned, what uh, is uh, else is happening in their life, too? How about their support system at home? If somebody has support and resources, it's such a huge help. By the way, we are seeing more and more heroin out in the suburbs of major American cities, and it's stronger than in the 70s. Many people get a strong high just snorting it, and overdoses with death do occur now with snorting the heroin, so people don't have to shoot it to overdose. We've also seen in the suburbs and in the city uh, heroin laced with this opioid narcotic fentanyl, and that's a, uh, more of a lethal combination also. Susie? Well, I, I do agree with you. I'm thinking about um, clients who maybe did have, or many of them did have a psychological uh, depression and or bipolar underneath all of it. Many of the clients that I saw who actively were working or off of the heroin would still come in and state that they were taking sedatives. And it, it sure seemed to me at the time that they were looking to relieve um psychological pain that they were going through. Now, how about this next story? Dads may unwittingly push their daughters towards bulimia. Bulimia is an eating disorder where people binge on food and make them uh, themselves throw up. With eating disorders, it's often been the mom who's been blamed. Somehow, moms always get the blame. Why is that? I don't know. But here... Dad's behaviors and words can push their daughter towards bulimia and presumably anorexia as well. Turns out, according to this article, that dads who are overweight themselves, who criticize their daughter's weight and size, 
and who push their daughters to diet may actually push their daughter into bulimia. Another parent behavior that added to the risk is over-control of what the kid eats. This has been talked about quite a bit in young anorexists for many years, that they are competing with parents for control, and some anorexics have said that at least through the, through the fact of not eating, they can control something. So over-controlling moms particularly have been blasted as part of the problem. I think that it's much more complicated than that uh, as far as why some kids become anorexic or bulimic, but controlling parents may be indeed a small part of it. Another point in the study was that if parents are overly concerned with weight and diet, the kids become that way too, and that makes sense. So the bottom line is we should promote exercise, healthy eating, but not dieting per se. Susie, any thoughts? Well, well, it certainly seems to me that um, with fathers um, having their own issues with weight and somehow, in a psychological term, projecting those issues onto their daughter, that would be could certainly be quite subtle. And I'm wondering to myself, what other issues can parents uh, project onto their kids, their daughters, their sons in general? Um, it just goes to show that, you know, what, how we are as parents, sometimes we're not even fully aware of, of our impact on them. Now, on another topic, our multivitamins may not be so safe. ConsumerLab.com found that some multivitamins contain unacceptably high lead levels, among other quality problems. One of the multivitamins for women had extremely high lead levels. Another children's vitamin had much higher levels of vitamin A that was stated on the bottle. You can get the report at ConsumerLab.com. You know, it's been a bad year for vitamins and herbs. A number of them have bitten the dust in studies. For example, vitamin E was pushed and pushed and pushed. I remember magazines all about vitamin E's miracle benefits 35 years ago. And... Last year, studies actually came out showing that vitamin E increased the risk for heart failure. You could just hear all of the vitamin E bottles around the country crashing into the garbage. There are still benefits of low-dose vitamin E, such as for the eyes. Likewise, studies on echinacea for colds indicated that it does not work, that after 40 years of hearing on and on claims that echinacea is a miracle for colds. So it's buyer beware, caveat emptor out there in vitamin and herb land. Lots of claims, very little positive data. The two that are holding up are vitamin D, which is holding up in every study, and also omega-3s that are found in fish oil or flaxseed oil or flaxseed, which is pretty good. It's a little nutty, crunchy taste on cereal. You can also get omega-3s just by eating fish. But really, should we take multivitamins? The jury is still out. Well, that wraps up today's show. We bring you each and every week the interesting medical stories and conundrums 
I'm Dr. Larry Robbins. You can email us at D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL.com. Our website is HeadacheDrugs.com. See you next week. You've been listening to The Dr. Robbins Show, featuring Larry Robbins, M.D., and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW. Learn more about Dr. Robbins online at HeadacheDrugs.com. And join us next time for more about health and medicine right here on The Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. We'll be right back.